It was one of those elections on which history is pinned. Last week, Scotland voted to return the Scottish National Party to power for a historic fourth term. What could that result mean for Scotland's future in the United Kingdom? In no way can a referendum be described as just a demand of me or of the SNP. It is a commitment made to the people by a clear majority of the MSPs who have been elected to our national parliament. It is the will of the country. We are not just evenly divided as a country. We are now deeply, deeply polarised on the constitutional question, arguably even more deeply polarised than the UK has been and arguably still is over Brexit. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, what next for Scottish independence? My name's Kieran Andrews and I'm the Scottish political editor of The Times. Kieran has been covering the Scottish Parliament in Holyrood since 2012. We've all been, by and large, confined to our homes. And I think it's fair to say there's quite a lot of people in the Scottish political bubble who thought that was going to result in a low turnout election because, Mm. frankly, we were all a bit bored of it. And instead, what we saw last Thursday was, was record numbers of people turning out in the hail, in the sleet, in the pouring rain in Scotland. Welcome to your Scottish forecast. Here are your headlines into Thursday. A transient spell of sleet and snow will push down from the north. Scotland's weather's not brilliant, but but it was it was something special on Thursday, <laughs> and yet people turned out in record numbers. Apocalyptic for May. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. Why? Why were people, despite everything, despite all the lockdowns and all the precautions and the weather, why were people turning up in their hordes to vote? One of the theories put forward quite tickled me and is possibly true. So it might just be people looking to get out of the house. You know, we've been stuck inside for so long, going out to vote. It's it's, uh, it's, it's the new night out. <laughs> but in all seriousness, there is also the factor potentially that people spending more time at home and consuming news more because... There's more time and space to do it. The viewing figures for the televised leaders debates were all up this election compared to previous elections in Scotland. We probably should have seen that there was a trend coming on that earlier than we did. First and foremost, it was an election that was about recovery from the pandemic. Nicola Sturgeon in the SNP, she's seen her standing grow because of how she's communicated during the pandemic and how she seemed to have handled the crisis. So there was a real trust factor that the SNP wanted to put forward in Nicola Sturgeon, kind of continuity factor, which is kind of ironic in some ways, because of course, the other thing that ran through this election was the prospect of independence and a second independence Mm. referendum. Which of those do you think was the more important in this election? Was it about her handling of the pandemic or was it about the pitch of independence? In some ways, actually, independence was a greater motivating factor, according to polls that we've done for unionist voters, people who don't support the SNP, than people who do. We saw a lot of tactical voting on the day, and that was something that was foreshadowed in a poll that we did for the Times Scotland, that people were planning to vote according to which party was best placed to beat the SNP. Was it a big part of Nicola Sturgeon's pitch in this election? How much was she talking about it when she was addressing the public? 
it dwindled as the campaign went on. The the That's main pitch of the SNP during this election was security, stability, COVID recovery, and Nicola Sturgeon is the person to be trusted with that. In asking you to re-elect me as First Minister, I promise you this, strong leadership to steer the country through the pandemic. Now, don't get me wrong, if you're voting for the SNP, I think you're probably pretty aware of what their stance in the Constitution is. And they kept repeating the phrase Scotland's choice, which in itself is quite interesting because they talked about Scotland's choice, not a second independence referendum. So on May 6th, make it both votes SNP. Then we can take the first steps towards a new nation that's fair, a nation that cares. Scotland's future is Scotland's choice and nobody else's. So it was there, it was always there throughout the campaign. Up next, it's the focus group where we head to Scotland. And what we found actually in a Times Radio focus group is a focus group done with a number of soft SNP voters, you know, people who perhaps voted no in 2014 and have shifted towards the SNP, people who thought that Nicola Sturgeon had handled the pandemic well really liked her, but were very much put off by the prospect of there being a second independence referendum. Right, let's take a listen then. This is what the focus group uh, thought that Nicola Sturgeon's current position is on the uh, question of independence. As far as I'm aware, she's wanting to deal with the pandemic. She has said herself that she will put it to a vote to the people of Scotland, but that's not her top priority. Myself, independence isn't a big thing at the moment. Getting through this pandemic is a big thing and uh, I think that's why Nicola has sort of shelved it, the independence for just now. And um, Once we are a wee bit clearer how we're getting through this pandemic, then maybe go for it. I, I do think they've got a proven track record on NHS, on education, on childcare, on, on loads of things now that a lot of people can trust them. It's not all about independence. We've seen in recent days, actually, Gordon Brown is now doing the tours of the television radio studios. There's a middle group of people in Scotland who may think that they uh, want independence at the moment and may desire it, but they also want better cooperation between Scotland and the UK. And basically he's aiming at these people who probably at the moment lean towards the SNP, who feel more Scottish than British, but aren't Mm. wedded to necessarily constitutional change and trying to persuade them that there is a form of the United Kingdom that they can live with. We've got time now to do so. They'll find cooperation within the United Kingdom is better than separation. Is that exciting enough, though, do you think? I think cooperation, solidarity, empathy, sharing, these are all really important values, and they've been lost in this debate about independence so far. This middle group in Scotland is becoming increasingly crucial. But how many people are in that middle group of swing voters? And how have things changed since the first referendum in 2014? There was really only one person to ask. On the eve of the election, Yes campaign strategist Marco Biaggi went viral in Scotland with this tweet. Before you go to bed tonight, don't forget to leave out the sherry and mince pies for John Curtis. John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. It's never quite an election until you've spoken. So tell us, with the benefit of a few days now, what's your take on the outcome of the elections in Scotland? Scotland is basically now divided down the middle on the constitutional question. If you add up the votes on the constituency vote, 
there is a very narrow majority for unionist MPs, 50.4%. And on the list vote, there is an even narrower majority of 50.1% who voted for nationalist parties. Around 90% of people were voting for a party whose view was consistent with that of their current preference on independence. In other words, around 90% of YES supporters are voting for the SNP or for the SNP and the Greens on the list. And nearly 90% of those on the unionist side are voting for one of the three principal unionist parties. So it was, in effect, a quasi-referendum. So this is a very, very sharp division. In the post-Brexit world, Scotland's attitudes towards its constitutional status are divided down the middle. Most recent polls are yes, 49, no, 51. And I think the result of this election tells us that indeed looks like to be a pretty accurate reading of where the country is at. So it does therefore mean that, frankly, neither side in the argument can be entirely comfortable as to where we are at. The legitimacy of the union in Scotland is under threat. We are talking about a country where half of the public no longer wish to be part of the United Kingdom. And that therefore, you know, the principal reason why those on the union side of the argument seem to be very keen on trying to avoid a referendum is that, frankly, I think they're perfectly well aware that they're at risk of losing. But equally, on the nationalist side, they've just got themselves to the point where half the public are in favour. But given that an awful lot has changed since 2014, holding a referendum anytime soon would also be a remarkable gamble for Nicola Sturgeon, which does therefore mean that probably in the short run, at least, it's going to be in the interests of both sides to want to play it long rather than necessary to play it short. I understand there was tactical voting going on. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, I think, you know, one of the things underneath all of this, and indeed, you know, the principal explanation as to why the SNP did not get an overall majority, was a willingness by voters on the unionist side of the argument to vote tactically. They were willing, in quite surprisingly large numbers, to ignore the traditional left-right divide of our politics. Some Labour voters switched to the Tories to try to stop the SNP from winning locally. And on the other side of the fence, Conservative voters were switching to Labour defend off the SNP. And take us back to 2014, to the last independence referendum. Roughly where was support, public support for, for independence before the campaign started? And how has that transformed since 2014? The period since 2007, when the SNP first gained power at Holyrood, was a period in which, if anything, support for independence seemed to be rather lower than it had been previously, and probably not much more than between 30 and 35%. We ended up, of course, at 45%. And that 45% never disappeared after the uh, 2014 referendum. So the honest truth is that although the unionists won the campaign battle, they frankly lost the uh, war. And the long-term consequence of holding the referendum was to result in much higher level of support for independence than had ever previously been the case, to turn Scotland, frankly, into the most problematic part of the Union, overtaking Northern Ireland in that respect, and of course, along the way, completely destroying the Labour Party's electoral base north of the border, a very large proportion of people who had hitherto voted Labour, so I'm at least st- still continuing to vote Labour for Westminster elections, voted yes, and then marched off and voted for the SNP in the 2015 general election. 
Now, things remained roughly at that level. But after the 2016 EU referendum, the polls in 2019 all of a sudden uh, were registering an average of 49% support for independence in the polls very consistently, as opposed to the 45% that was registered after all. And crucially, all of the increase in support for independence occurred amongst Remain voters. And mm. there is frankly no escaping the conclusion that the UK's government's decision to pursue Brexit is the principal reason why we are where we are. Now, beyond that, support for independence did go up to around the 53-54% mark in the summer of the autumn of last year, when we were at the height of the pandemic. And that seemed to be fueled by a perception that perhaps an independent Scotland would have been able to handle the pandemic better. Well, that perception's gone. Now opinion is evenly divided on that subject. And in the wake of that, support for independence is back down to the 49% mark that it was in the wake of Brexit. And just out of interest, when I've been up covering elections around Scotland, you often meet SNP voters who vote SNP happily now because they like Nicola Sturgeon, they like some of her policies, but they think the question of independence is off the table. Do we have a sense of how big that constituency is and what happens to them? Yes, this is the crucial thing you need to understand about one of the ways in which Scotland has been changed. That sentiment is now very rare indeed. If you take the final polls, mm. the five final polls before the election, uh, before the polling day, and it's true in all these polls, only 8% of those people who said that they would vote no in an independence uh, referendum saying they were going to vote for the SNP. That is down from 20% in 2016 and nearly 40% in 2011. So you're quite wow. right. That used to be a widespread sentiment. We are not just evenly divided as a country. We are now deeply, deeply polarised on the constitutional question, arguably even more deeply polarised than the UK has been and arguably still is over Brexit. Now, you know, just looking forward, one of the implications of all of this is one of the things that the unionist side is going to have to think about if the attempt to hold a referendum is blocked, is what will the SNP do next? And you have to bear in mind that one possibility is that the SNP will say, well, apparently it's impossible to get a referendum. Apparently, however well we do in a Scottish Parliament election, it's not available to us. And actually, if we get a majority of Scotland's representation at Westminster, we will regard that as a mandate to negotiate for independence. And the risk that the unions now face is that in 2023, they may be facing a nationalist movement that, like Sinn Féin in Ireland in 1918, is saying, look, if you vote for us, this is a vote for independence. And then appreciate that there is always a pretty high probability that there might be a hung parliament after the next Westminster election in which the SNP are perhaps the hinge party and then you will appreciate the way in which this issue could come reverberating back to Westminster if indeed it's not sorted before the next general election. Coming up, what would a new referendum look like? How soon might it happen? And would it even be legal? Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Take us back to that moment in 2014 when the first referendum happened. Well, Scotland's biggest city, Glasgow, voted yes to independence. Well, we can also give you the result from Edinburgh, I think. Yes, it's in. A hefty no vote, as has been forecast all night. 61% uh, no in Edinburgh, 60% in Aberdeenshire. The people of Scotland have spoken, and it is a clear result. Let us not dwell on the, the distance we have fallen short. Let us dwell on the distance we have travelled and have confidence that the movement is abroad in Scotland that will take this nation forward and we shall go forward as one nation. Thank you very much. It was the First Minister himself, Alex Salmond, who said in advance that if this was the outcome, that would be it for a generation. His deputy, Nicola Sturgeon, said that meant at least 15 years. Remind us a bit about that referendum. What were the key moments in it and what was it that was really driving people's votes? Well, actually... To come back to this uh, Middle Scotland argument, Better Together, who were the campaign organisation for the union, had done an awful lot of internal research. And they divided Scottish voters up into three parts almost. A third of people who would vote yes no matter what, a third of people who would vote no no matter what, and a kind of floating third in the middle. And they really hammered messaging to, to this Middle Scotland again, to use that term. And they asked questions about the currency, about what would happen to people's pensions and mortgages and, and, and lots of practicalities about independence. It's a massive decision and there will be no going back. It will affect not just us, but the opportunities of future generations. We don't need to leave the UK to be Scottish. Could we keep the pound? My guy off the telly promises us we can. It'll all be fine, he says. Yeah, right. I've heard that one before. It was termed Project Fear by Alex Salmond, who was in charge of the SNP at that time and the Yes movement. These parties have given us from everything from the, the poll tax to the bedroom tax. And they are the same people who, through Project Fear, are telling us that this country can't run our own affairs. But ultimately, it persuaded enough people to stay within the United Kingdom, particularly the question on currency. That seemed to hang over the Yes campaign. 
Now look, any eight-year-old can tell you the flag of the country, the capital of a country, and its currency. Now I presume the flag's the saltire. I assume our capital will still be Edinburgh, but you can't tell us what currency we'll have. What's well, an eight-year-old going to make of that? Alistair, we'll keep the pound because it belongs to Scotland as much as it belongs to England. It's our pound as well as your pound. Even Gordon Brown... Would Scotland be able to be in a currency union with the rest of the UK? Would an independent Scotland use the pound? Would it have to join the euro? Would it set up its own currency? Part of the problem here, Alex Salmond, is that you have said that you would take sterling, but perhaps for a short or limited period of time. There's a range of options, of currency options for Scotland. The best one, we think, for Scotland and indeed for the rest of the United Kingdom, is the sterling zone that, that we accept. But yes from the or no, Alex Salmond, would you put a time well, limit, say, half a century? Well, we're perfectly prepared to, to have these negotiations now, so Kirsty. If that, if that, well, uh, you asked me first if we'd have... That was the issue that dogged the Yes campaign more than any other. And it's the issue that still, in so many ways, dogs it more than any other. There's division within really? the SNP about what the currency of an independent Scotland should be. So in many ways, the big issues that those soft no voters were put off by in 2014, you know, they, they all still remain seven years later. Is there a sense of deja vu in all of this for you? <laughs> As someone who's covered it for a while. There has been at points, there was an announcement last week about how RBS, rebranded RBS, would move its headquarters to London in an independent Scotland. I was just transported back to being a cub reporter, joining the corridor at Holyrood and, and thinking, wow, what a big story. And, and yet here we are covering exactly the same story with exactly the same arguments from independent supporters arguing why that doesn't really matter and it won't result in job losses and... Yeah, there's there's a pretty massive deja vu in some cases, but of course in others where uh, issues that were raised in 2014 that seemed kind of hyperbole then around about the border between Scotland and England, which, you know, was never taken too seriously because an independent Scotland always wanted to join the EU. So it was always assumed that, mm. you know, you'd be able to, to move freely and goods would be able to move freely within the UK. Now, presumably, it would be the reverse. Well, well, absolutely. In a, in a, in a post-Brexit Scottish independence referendum, the border is actually a big issue. Not so much for the free movement of people, which would probably be fine through some sort of common travel area agreement, but the movement of goods. You know, we've seen the, we've seen the problems around Brexit and Northern Ireland, in particular, and the protocol there. So, what happens if you're drawing a, a border, you know, along yeah. from Berwick? That is a real live issue. Of course, um, supporters of independence would point out that it would open up Scotland to the rest of the EU and it would mitigate a lot of the a lot of the problems that it was seen exporting, particularly from the, the seafood industry in Scotland. I mean, I suppose we can't really talk about a future independence referendum without talking about Brexit, because that's probably the single factor that's really changed since 2014. How much is it impacting people's thinking on independence? Of course, there's the other Brexit factor, which is looking at Brexit and looking at the turmoil and difficulties of it, is whether Scotland wants to go through that in the event of independence. So it'll be really yeah. interesting to see whether Brexit is so bad that people want to escape it or whether it's deemed so bad that people don't want to replicate it with independence. And that will be a key battleground over the next few while. You cannot exclude from the European Union 
uh, citizens in Scotland who've been part of it for over 40 years and be totally ridiculous. I think it'll be quite hard to get back in, I have to say, but let's move on. But yeah, that's because... what, that's the, this is what the Andrew Marr analysis, as opposed having, to... Having, having talked to Mr... Former. The other thing, of course, that's different this time round, to step away from Brexit slightly, is the leaders. In 2014, we had Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon very much as a team fronting the Yes campaign. Scotland should be an independent country. Scotland's future in Scotland's hands. And you had Alistair Darling in charge of Better Together with Gordon Brown, you know, Gordon Brown stepping in significantly later in the day. The only answer for Scotland's sake and for Scotland's future is vote no. I don't think it's good for people looking at Scotland, wanting to see Scotland open for business, to see a whole list of companies say they're moving their headquarters down south. I don't think that's good for Scottish business. Ruth Davidson emerging as the campaign went on. Of all of those people, only Nicola Sturgeon is still on the front line. With Brexit and all the fallout from it, you know, an awful lot of time has been spent nationally arguing about what sort of a Brexit we have and the sort of relationship you, you rebuild with the EU. Do we have a sense of what sort of an independence Nicola Sturgeon is arguing for? In 2014, the case for independence and Nicola Sturgeon effectively wrote the white paper, which was the, the prospectus for independence. That was a very soft independence, as you were. It seems unlikely that would change massively. The independence we seek is the very opposite of Brexit. Brexit is about turning inwards pulling up the drawbridge, retreating from the world. Independence is about being open, outward-looking, aspiring to play our full part in the world around us. And, it is and indeed, Nicholas Sturgeon has talked about the idea of Scotland being a bridge between the EU and a kind of Brexit Britain, as it were. But what we don't have is any kind of detail or any kind of prospectus at the moment. Nicholas Sturgeon said that work hasn't started on that at all. We don't know the detail of what the currency arrangement would be like or how the border would work because there's been no renewed case made in the seven years since then. As things stand, how likely is it that there will be an independence referendum? The foot will not be pressed down on the accelerator. Nicola Sturgeon knows that the pandemic and recovery from the pandemic is first and foremost in people's minds in Scotland. We've got a difficult few months still ahead of us. We're in a good position with COVID. I hope everything is going firmly in the right direction, but we've got to make sure that that continues to be the case. She said she wants to hold it before the end of 2023. The legislation, if a referendum is to be delivered within the first half of this parliament, which is my preference, COVID permitting. What will happen over the next few months is that at some point she will approach Boris Johnson and once again ask for his agreement to hold a referendum. Powers over the Constitution are reserved to Westminster and in 2012 those powers were transferred temporarily by David Cameron to the Scottish Parliament to hold the 2014 referendum. Now, presuming Boris Johnson says no to that as every indication... Mm. I was going to say, he certainly hasn't made any noises which would make it, make it seem like he might accept a, an offer. He has not, at which point... Nicola Sturgeon will look to lodge legislation in the Scottish Parliament just to go ahead with a referendum anyway. So does that become a legal referendum? Well, there's a few checks and balances in here that will that will be fascinating to see how they play out if it comes to this. The first of all is 
We're expecting a reshuffle from the Scottish Government quite soon, and that will almost certainly include a new Lord Advocate, who is the Scottish Government's most senior legal advisor. Now, any legislation going before the Scottish Parliament has to be deemed by the Lord Advocate as being lawful. So Nicola Sturgeon's first hurdle will be getting any new law past her own legal advisor. If he signs that off, then there's a potential row with the presiding officer, the equivalent of the Speaker in the Scottish Parliament. Presuming all of that goes through, and if any bill makes it to the floor of the Scottish Parliament, it will pass because there is a convincing pro-independence majority with the Scottish Greens. Then two things can happen that could challenge the legality of the referendum further. One is that the UK government could say that this impinges on reserved responsibilities and refer it directly to the Supreme Court. That's potentially tricky for the UK government because I talked about this Times Radio focus group earlier. The one thing those kind of soft, no potential yes voters hated more than the idea of a second independence referendum was the idea of Boris Johnson saying no to them. So the UK government Ah. starting a court battle with the Scottish government is fraught with risk for Whitehall. But that raises the prospect that an outside party could challenge the legislation. It doesn't have to be UK ministers taking this to court. So there is the prospect that a Gina Miller type figure, if you cast your mind back to the debate over (laughs) Brexit, Brexit, yes, could challenge any Scottish government independence legislation in the Supreme Court instead. So it's a complex path just to get to a referendum. It's a particularly awkward calculus for Boris Johnson to work out how to prevent a referendum without antagonising most of the people of Scotland. Yeah, absolutely. And what the UK government is planning to do at the moment is, well, I suppose this is in a time where we, we have just recently discovered that we'll be able to hug our loved ones again. The UK government is planning to wrap its arms around Scotland, squeeze it tight and slip some money in its coat pocket (laughs) as well at the same time. And if there is a referendum and it's lost again, is it the end of the question or does that go on? Well, from other international examples, it has been suggested, particularly when you look at uh, the Quebec referendum, that once the question has been asked a second time, it tends to fall away. After 2014, Alex Salmond resigned as First Minister and leader of the SNP because Mm. uh, he had lost the referendum. Now, that was a very, very smart political move. He took any blame or repercussions that might have followed from the result with him, and he was also able to hand over to Nicola Sturgeon, who had been groomed for the job throughout her time as Alex Salmond's deputy. This time, if there was another no vote... I suspect there would be an expectation that Nicola Sturgeon would perhaps have to resign over that. And the problem there for the pro-independence campaign is there is no one remotely near Nicola Sturgeon or indeed Alex Salmon's level of political ability. The independence movement would lose by far its most valuable figurehead and asset. She knows that if that chance is lost there is a reasonable chance that you're saying goodbye to the prospects of independence in maybe her lifetime. She wants this to be as sewn up as possible when she's going into a future referendum. Every politician wants to have a legacy. And what greater legacy could there be for a Scottish nationalist than being the person 
who leads the country to independence. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Times Scottish political editor, Kieran Andrews, and Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University, Professor Sir John Curtis. You can keep up with all of Kieran's reporting at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If there's a story that you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do get in touch. Send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.